Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker Whitelaw, and here is my co host, Morgan Davies. Hello. Um, so we're back after a week's break uh, due to health issues, but we have returned um, with lots of enthusiasm for Muriel's Wedding, which is an Australian comedy drama starring Toni Collette. This was Toni Collette's breakout role. She is amazing in this, as she is in everything else. Um, it's directed and written by PJ Hogan, who kind of has done various films that are loosely under the umbrella of chick flick, including My Best Friend's Wedding. And this film is about a socially awkward 20-something um, working class Australian woman who is completely obsessed with the idea of having a wedding and basically is in kind of like a dead end situation with her family. Her father is incredibly shitty. Her mom and her siblings are basically tuned out of life. And the movie kind of sees her make various disastrous life choices to try and escape this situation without having any particular plan. And mostly she just really wants a wedding. And it's not a rom-com. No. <laughs> Decidedly uh, not. <laughs> yeah, she winds up like stealing all her, her dad's money and running off and becoming friends with a hip woman who's much cooler than she is. And it, they really seem seem gay, but they're not. It reminded we'll me a lot later. of Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Yes. And like when I was watching it, I was like, this is like Romy and Michelle, but much more depressing. But tonally, it's a comedy while also being depressing. I mean, the 90s were when sort of like indie film, I'm using air quotes, became a sort of genre right like Sundance started right mm -hmm. at the end of the 80s and I don't believe this played at Sundance but it feels very much like a Sundance movie which can sometimes be used in a pejorative sense but in this case I feel like that I'm using that in a positive way like it is dealing with granular issues in a very particular place in the world that is not a place that movies generally treat which is like this kind of backwater Australian town and it is simultaneously very, very funny, but also dealing with quite serious issues in a way that really works in the movie, I think. Like, the, it doesn't feel off to me throughout, even though it is doing kind of both things at once, in a way that feels very, very, like, indie movie-ish in a sort of familiar way to us now. But I think probably at the time when this came out, it came out in 1994, I imagine it felt quite remarkable at the time. 1994 is a wild year for Australian cinema. This was also the year that Priscilla, Queen of the Desert came out, or The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I should say, and also uh, Strictly Ballroom. So this was like a big moment for Australian indie And I remember cinema. there was like some kind of big deal to do with getting the licensing for ABBA's music because until that year, ABBA had never allowed their music to be in anything. And I think it was like this movie got ABBA first and Priscilla Queen of the Desert's like music supervisors were just like steaming because they had, they wanted to have all this ABBA in their, in their movie. And I think they either got like one song or none at all or something. So I was homesick from work for a few days uh, a couple months ago and sort of randomly watched both Priscilla and this on the same day. I knew they were both Australian movies, but I didn't realize they had literally come out in the same year. So I had this kind of funny double bill. And um, I think I watched this one first. That is the right way round. Yes. <laughs> Watch the donor first. <laughs> right. And there is a ton of ABBA in this, which we'll discuss a little bit more it's used to great effect and then you get to priscilla and uh, or i got to priscilla rather and they talk about abba a ton but they have maybe 30 seconds i think of abba <laughs> because they clearly didn't have the rights to it but it's still like it's a 
topic in the movie. And so by the time I was done with this double bill, I was like, oh my God, like what is happening? <laughs> just like Abba, just Australia. Like, what? Like, <laughs> oh God, I've not seen, I've not seen Priscilla Queen of the Desert since I was in high school, but I fucking loved that movie so much. Yes. And like, I love the scene where he lip syncs. I don't care if the sun don't shine. It's such a good song. It's such a good choice. What a wonderful movie. <laughs> I mean, that could be its whole, a whole episode unto itself. <laughs> a fantastic film. It is interesting to think of the two of them coming out in the same year because they do have both the sort of indie sensibility that I'm describing. And um, both have a very, very distinctly like Australian-ness yes. to them. I've never been to Australia, but as someone who's seen a lot of movies, I have you know, <laughs> seen a lot of movies that take place in a lot of different places. And this film in particular is so, 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 so specific about its setting and about the cultural references, many of which like I could tell they were going over my head as I was watching because it's a movie from 1994 and taking place in a country that is not my country, right? And everything about what's happening feels so tied to to that place and the way the people who live there live. I mean, it takes place in a fictional town called Porpoise Spit, which is also <laughs> delightful, but it's obviously, you know, drawing from a particular, the particular region that they're, they're setting the movie in. And I found that really delightful, even because even though it's not, you know, my area, whenever a movie is this specific or a work of art in general, like I always find that more, like it that that is automatically compelling and like draws you into the story because you can tell I think kind of intuitively when something is yes. specific in a way that's authentic, right? And this feels totally it's like the classic sort of like specific but universal story, right? Because yes. it's you know it's a small town girl who's really sheltered and feels like she has a dead end and life and her father is really shit in a very recognizable way. Like he's just constantly telling his kids and his wife that they're completely useless but he's not like comically abusive in the way that you see in sort of like heart hitting dramas where, you know, it's like they kind of illustrate stuff in a more like grim and terrifying way. But you can see how all these characters are really beaten down. And um, Mira's mother is such a sad figure because she's basically tuned out and it's not clear whether this is just like the effect of being in this abusive relationship for years or if she has early onset dementia or what, but she's just like completely zoning out of conversations and like it's just agreeing with everything and it's this completely passive figure and it's such an interesting performance especially in a movie that's like a broad comedy but like in terms of the universal the kind of universal aspects it definitely kind of it reminded me of Romeo and Michelle and also um the the um the comedy Drop Dead Gorgeous which is a teen movie starring uh, Kirsten Dunst from like around the same time and they all have these like really over the top like incredibly hyper bitchy mean girls who are all like completely buying into the idea of the be all and end all being having like a suburban marriage to some shitty man who immediately cheats on you which is exactly what Muriel is like she's so desperate to fit in with all these blonde girls and they're all like fucking awful and clearly have miserable lives and she can't fit in because she's just a bit weird, even though she's trying. <laughs> yes. And, like, the movie opens with a wedding. Her friend, I'm, again, using air quotes because mm. this girl is awful. And they literally, like, so all this, she's in with this kind of group of girls who clearly, they've all grown up together from when they were little kids. And that's why they're still kind of loosely in the same group. And right at the beginning of the movie, not in the first scene, but near the to the first scene, they all kind of go out to dinner and essentially break up with her on masks. Cause they're like, we just don't think we're, you know, you're 
Like, you're not cool enough for us. And they're going on vacation together and are like, yeah, you can't come. So that's not a good situation yeah. for her. But it's like, and also it's like the detail in that scene is so great because the movie has this really intentionally tacky aesthetic, like Romy and Michelle, but there's kind of different types of tackiness, right? And it's like the mean girl characters all have really kind of cliched sort of blonde beach girl 90s looks. And they literally tell Muriel, like, you don't fit in. And like, you don't know how to do your hair. And no matter how many times we tell you, you can't do it right. And you can tell just by looking at her that even though she looks really 90s and tacky, it's like the wrong kind of look. Right. And then in the same scene, there was like these scenes where the girls had these completely absurd problems of like to do with like their shitty husbands cheating and stuff. And like one of them is crying. And then when Muriel starts to cry, you just watch it and you're like, this is so sad because like she's crying in the wrong way for it to be socially acceptable. Yes. She's cr- she's like bawling like a toddler. And it's like, you haven't like learned how to cry like an adult lady in a bar so your friends will comfort you. There's just all these little kind of like little social cues. And you're just like, oh, Muriel. It's just, it's agony. <laughs> well, I want to respond to that. But my first point is the movie literally begins with this wedding and then the husband cheats on the bride immediately so like from the (laughs) get-go no man is good (laughs) right and like this whole like mirage of marriage that she's obsessed with is like the movie's telling you like this is bad it's a it's a mirage right like she can't attain it but because she is this basically still a child she can't figure that out and and uh, and all her Friends are, you know, obsessed with it, too. Like they're, but they're, all, they're not even obsessed with marriage. This. They're obsessed with weddings, which is why it's yes. called Muriel's Wedding. Because it's Correct. like, the whole thing is like, oh, there's this wedding. And like, kind of the movie is structured around kind of weddings that she has or doesn't have. And like, there's literally no example of a good marriage in the whole movie. And she doesn't fantasize about falling in love. Like, it's not a film where it's like, oh, Bridget Jones wants a man. She doesn't really try to date she just wants to leap to the point of having a wedding and then there's like no before or after for that or any like I mean there's definitely a way to read this movie where she's just gay because it's like does she is she attracted to men we don't know (laughs) I mean I think textually what you're supposed to get is that she's immature and also all men are terrible and, and she's just like cripplingly insecure yeah right because there's a scene she runs away to Sydney partway through the movie and there's a scene where um like a guy comes into sort of winds up like flirting with her in a video store where she's working and she's just like overcome by this situation. Like she does, she's just like, Oh my God. And they wind up going on a a date later that turns into this just like absolute farce. And I think you're, what you're kind of supposed to take from this is that she just is like, does not know how to handle herself in this situation because she doesn't know what a date is. (laughs) I mean, she, again, this gets back to like, the wedding thing is so funny because women of all ages are obsessed with the idea of marriage, right? Like that is, I was just reading an article about how this remains a thing that like adult women still sort of have this idea that like this is I the mean, thing I you're supposed to do, I mean, I know people who had right? like binders as children, which is well, like... <laughs> right. So this is what I'm trying to draw a distinction between, right? So there have been all kinds of studies that like marriage does not make you happy as an adult woman, but it's still for many, many people, most in fact, statistically, the thing that you're sort of supposed to aspire to, right? As a woman, adults feel this way. But when you're a kid, you're not thinking about like being an adult married person because you're you're five. You're thinking about a wedding. 
I never was like this, incidentally. Like, I didn't have that at all. Like, I had crushes on boys, but, like, the idea of a wedding, I was like, I have no... I mean, I came out of the womb, like, no. <laughs> right. So, I I was not like that, but little girls are like that. Like, that's totally a thing that where you're like, oh my god, like, let's prance around with, like, like pillowcases on our heads and, like, pretend that we're in a wedding. But the characters in this are, like, 20... And our and Muriel specifically are still like stuck in that phase of of being the little girl with the pillowcase, and they have no other options in their lives, right? And so the whole movie is kind of this her her journey to realizing that that's actually not what her whole life has to be, and it takes her a long time, and it's interesting because. She does wind up running away to Sydney halfway through the movie. And I think in a lot of films, that would kind of be the whole trajectory of the film, right? Like she gets out of the town, she moves to the city, and now she realizes that life is bigger than porpoise spit and like, it's all good. But she gets to the city and she's still like that. Yeah, because like, that's how social conditioning <laughs> works. Right. It's not like a switch that flips on and off. And so... She's, like, going around all these bridal shops, like, telling lies, pretending that, you know, I mean, it's it evolves over the course of the thing, but like, she tells these lies in order to get to try on the wedding dresses by herself and, like, goes to all the different bridal shops in Sydney so that she can pull this con at all of them. And, I mean, just, like, we'll get further into the plot, but, like, it just continues and continues and continues. And... I think what makes her so likable, even though she's doing objectively kind of shitty things throughout much of the film, is that she has this childlike quality about her where you're like, yeah, you know what? You're kind of a dirtbag, but like, whatever. <laughs> and it's kind of, I found it very refreshing to watch a movie with a female character like that, where I was just like, you know what? You don't know what anything is. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not at all. And and also, I think, like, she is dumb. Yeah. Like, she's a dumbass. <laughs> really? <Just laughs> Every like... single person in the whole film is a dumbass. Yeah. Her friend Rhonda is the least stupid character. Oh, easily. <laughs> easily. I mean, you were talking about the uh, the styling earlier. And I think the costumes in this movie are just completely genius. They're so good. <laughs> so good. So, Tony Collette, who has been in, you know many, many films since this. We'll talk about her career a little bit later, but um, she has an incredibly striking face, but she's not a like traditional Hollywood beauty, right? And she put on 40 pounds for this movie. She's not like massively overweight, but she's clearly not like a scrawny starlet movie star. She's not unattractive at all. But she does not look, again, like a sort of CW test tube blonde, whatever. So they take the combination of her looking basically like a normal person you could be friends with and put her in clothes that just do not fit her. <laughs> like, they just, and like, are again, like, sort of the wrong things well, to be like wearing. In the first scene, she goes to this wedding in like a really tight leopard print dress with like her bra showing 
and sort of transparent black tights and everyone else is wearing frilly pastels and also yep. she shoplifted the dress and gets arrested at the wedding and it's like <laughs> every element of this is perfect right <laughs> and so there's just some and it's obviously in the performance also that she just is such an uncomfortable person it like radiates off of her in every element of her being i mean she's so different from every other tony collette performance i've seen and this was when she was 22. This was her... I mean, she'd done some other stuff before this, including she'd had a lead role in another film, but this was really her breakout. And I was just like, every Tony Collette role is so different. She is so versatile. She is the Christian Bale of middle-aged women. <laughs> I think she's just incredible. I love, I love her. her. Obviously, we talked about her in Hereditary last year, which is as far from this as it is possible. <laughs> yes, this, this, this episode is going to have some great show notes links, because we're going to be like, listen to our Romeo and Michelle episode and listen to our Hereditary episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she also, I mean, I my personal favorite performance of hers remains uh, Velvet Goldmine. Of course. Where she plays um, the wife to the David Bowie-esque character. Which is not like a quote-unquote wife, wife role. It's no, a great role. No, it's a great role. And she gets to do a lot of different kinds of things in that movie, even though it's a supporting part. It's a big supporting part. She also, she's played a lot of moms, but like interesting mom Yeah, roles. I think there's a, there's a really, there's a good article somewhere that we'll find and link in the show notes that's kind of about how she has kind of cornered the market in interesting mom roles because she's like rather than just being like the graveyard of women over 35 which is kind of how just playing the mum, she plays movies where the character is a mother and it's like one aspect of an interesting troubled character so kind of the archetypal one is united states of tara which is a tv show she did where she has multiple personalities which is like as far as I've heard, I mean, I've watched a couple of seasons of the show. It was really good. But I've also read that it is one of the more tactful depictions <laughs> of that. So yes. <laughs> unlike most. Um, and also obviously Hereditary and um, Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, I mean, Little Miss Sunshine, I think, was the first thing I saw her in. I really loved that movie as a teenager. And that, I think, is a great example of a role that demonstrates how talented she is. Because it is a very good role. I mean, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I think I would still like it a lot but um it's not a particularly flashy role it's definitely it's a mom role but it's very well written but it's not something like hereditary right she's playing a totally just like normal person kind of dealing with this odd situation and she just feels so like a real woman in that movie that i remember finding her really really compelling as like a 16 or 17 year old you know, girl. And the fact that she's done all of these different things in her career without being the kind of like, I mean, I love Christian Bale as we've discussed, but <laughs> she's not doing that, you know. Oh, Morgan, she played the villain in Triple X3, which FYI is a brilliant movie. Morgan wouldn't <laughs> like it, but she is the villain in Triple X3 and she's great and she gets to wear so many like shiny Bond villain costumes. And I was like, well, yes, Tony. She was in Velvet Buzzsaw also with like the great wig and <laughs> she had the only good death in that movie. I mean, she's just all, it's great. I'm really happy for her. And her career. She's a huge workaholic, so that helps. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really surreal to go back and watch this, having mostly seen her in stuff where she's been sort of early middle-aged to middle-aged-ish. And she is such... I mean, she was 22 when she did this, but she really feels like a teenager. <laughs> and looks really different. 
And just the energy she's exuding is so different from those roles. Like, even though they are, they are very different. It was just sort of wild to me to watch this. And like, this was four years before Velvet Goldmine. And she feels like a middle-aged woman in that. (laughs) And I just, it's, it's crazy. She's really good. That's my, that's my baseline conclusion from this. Tony Collette, good actress. Who knew? (laughs) But the universality thing you were talking about, I think so many young women could watch this. I was watching it thinking like, I wish I'd seen this when I was around that age because I would have loved it so much like I wasn't really anything like that character particularly but something about the sort of like large awkwardness of her yeah kind of the ways where she doesn't like fully conform and you can kind of and it's not sort of like in a rebellious way because there's a point where her friend like Rhonda who actually is the cool friend it's like oh you're so much better than these girls and it's kind of like in Romeo and Michelle you're like yeah they're awesome and in this, you're kind of like, Muriel isn't awesome, though. She's actually no. quite embarrassing. <laughs> right. Which is what is so, which is why I feel like I would have loved this as a teenage girl. And if we have any teenage girls listening to this, you should watch this film. Because that's such an uncommon thing to see in a movie. And I was definitely not this awkward as a teenager, but all teenagers are awkward. And yes. like feel excruciatingly awkward all the time, whether or not that's actually how you're behaving. And, like, part of what art does is, like, blow up to larger size the things that people are feeling internally. And I just was watching this and was like, yeah, yes. I recall being this age and just, like, feeling all the time. I think I did watch this around, because I think I watched this in my late teens or maybe in university. And I have no memory of what happened in the film apart from my emotional reaction was just kind of being like, wasn't this meant to be funny? Like Priscilla Queen of the Desert, I feel kind of bad about this. And like rewatching it now, I had exactly the same reaction. And it's like, that is not like a criticism of the film. It's just like an interesting kind of bait and switch with the tone of the film because it's very different from the way the aesthetic suggests because it is full of these really broad performances. Like her family, like her dad especially is this sort of like, you know, Uncle Dursley from Harry Potter figure. And like all of the kind of man characters, like the potential love interest men are like really silly. And there are parts of it that are quite farcical, but also it's got this very primary coloured aesthetic, right? So all of it adds up to like, this is going to be like a big sort of quirky comedy. And then all of the subject matter is just so sad and downbeat. And like, obviously it's like, it's not going to be like, oh, and sadly, because it's not that kind of film, but it's sort of a film about how like loads of people can live out kind of depressing despairing lives trapped by the gender binary and living in small towns and (laughs) unable to leave and like her whole thing is like being obsessed with marriage because like she doesn't know what marriage is even though she's surrounded by unhappy marriages so it's like quite dark material in like a not necessarily laugh out loud comedy context i think we had slightly different reactions to this because there is a lot of stuff in it that is quite dark and at times upsetting the stuff with her mother is definitely the saddest stuff in the film so she runs away from home she's not speaking to her parents and the sort of third act like big plot development in the movie is that um the there's a 
Olympic swimmer from South Africa who needs to become Australian in order to qualify for the Olympics. I mean, it must have been something to do with apartheid because it would be harder to get on the swimming team in Australia because they're really good at swimming. But anyway, they put out an ad for a wife, wife. basically, because he (laughs) has to get married to get a, a visa. And of course, Muriel is like, great. And he's just like, super, super, like, traditionally like hot blonde guy and takes one look at her and not based on her appearance but just like based on the fact that she's crazy way too into this and it's just like oh my god like why what like can we find anyone else and his you know coach or whatever is like no (laughs) this is it and he's like oh fuck so they wind up having this extremely extremely public wedding and her parents don't know that it's fake although everyone kind of thinks this is like slightly weird but her mother is like clipping all of the news cuttings and like putting them in a scrapbook and stuff and um sneaks in basically because she hasn't been invited because she's not talking to her family and it's very sad and then other stuff happens with her mom at the very end that's also quite upsetting so that stuff i found really sad and there's other stuff in the movie also that is quite serious but like i laughed a lot watching it i would think i would have laughed more if i was with people but i was watching this film alone so i was just well, like, i was oh. alone with shingles so oh. i too okay you enough. win <laughs> <laughs> but i also think like muriel despite being so like awkward and weird there's something about her that's so sort of weirdly optimistic yes. the whole time that i think that that informs the tone of the movie a lot i mean obviously it's all kind of feeding into each other in like a feedback loop but part of what's so winning about her is that she clearly has a lot of self-loathing and doesn't really know what to do with herself and is sort of fixated on this traditional idea of what she's supposed to be and do with her life but there's something in her that is also clearly like i have to get out of yeah here right oh my god i've just realized what she is She's if a manic pixie dream girl didn't have the male gaze. Yes. Because she's really impulsive. Yes. She kind of looks strange because of her weird dress sense. Um, she's got kind of offbeat, uncool hobbies that are kind of cool. Like going around trying on a bunch of wedding dresses is such a bold move. <laughs> and like being obsessed with ABBA in the 90s is so uncool. And she kind of acts like a child and all of that is manic pixie dream girl stuff but when it's in like a normal example it's always that type of stuff that like feels kind of hot to men yes <laughs> correct and if you take that out that context it's just weird it's just weird <laughs> it's just weird but she's like she's really winsome and if she weren't that would just be a fucking weird movie about a fucking weirdo who is like mentally ill and needs help and instead it's sort of like you know what (laughs) like good for you kid like she steals all of her dad's money and the end of the movie sets all of the sort of uh various plot things up where she has to kind of atone for the things she's done that are like morally wrong it's not like the movie's letting her get away with all of these various things that she's done that are sort of objectively like bad things to do like stealing all of your parents savings which you shouldn't do but it also feels like the movie like isn't actually that mad at her. And also her dad was shit and took loads of bribes and is really corrupt. So it's kind of like, well, exactly. <laughs> so it has this sort of ambivalent 
attitude to a lot of her sort of like bad in quotes behavior, right? And there's something about that that's kind of fun where you're like, yeah, she should be doing this, but like, okay. And her friend Rhonda, um, played by Rachel Griffiths, who's so great, is sort of the person who's encouraging her to not behave like one of the sort of standard girls from Porpoise Spit and has a very sort of loose attitude towards sex, does not read as a straight woman at all. Like if this movie had been made now, no way, no way would she only be having sex with lots of men in like threesomes in the back of the apartment or whatever, which happens in the movie. And is clearly sort of like a non-traditional character in the context of the movie. And so the film is kind of just like edging you and Muriel into this sort of space of like, yeah, you shouldn't, you know, steal all this money or like not talk to your parents ever. Like, that's probably not a good idea. But also don't just get married because you should get married and leave your small town and go to the city because it will be better there. So it winds up in this kind of middle place, which I think is pretty endorsable. Yeah. Of like basically behave well, but like you don't have to do all that. And old it's also crap not stuff, sort right? of like massively over optimistic follow your dream stuff. Yes. She Which doesn't I think really have all... a dream except to get married, right? Yeah. It's just... But also I feel like also to me kind of feels a bit like that kind of makes it to me fall into this nineties queer movie zone, right? Because I feel like in a sort of mainstream indie dramedy queer story, the happy ending is like having an apartment with your friends and escaping your homophobic relatives, right? <laughs> Whereas like the happy ending in like a straight rom-com is finding Mr. Right and living and like having like a super successful career or whatever. And it's just like, it's like manageable expectations, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is kind of what this movie is. It's like, yeah, okay. Just free yourself from your hideous family. <laughs> One of the things about this that makes it so appealing and again, grounded in the very, sort of granular reality of the setting is that so many of the sort of big splashy rom-coms of the 90s and are about to rich now people. well yes i mean always from from the inception from, of the genre from ever <laughs> from romantic comedies have been about rich people but now they're all still about magazine journalists which is like that like no one is a magazine journalist anymore <laughs> there are five of them left on the earth uh and these kind of old-fashioned professions that like it's just existing in another universe of like what is happening and it's not that having your heroine have like a professional interest or goal in addition to a romantic interest is bad because you know that's fine but the m movies have a very difficult time often sort of balancing those two things out Yeah, it feels kind of symbolic where you're like yeah i want my character to look like a career woman because that's feminist but actually it's sort of like the job is just this sort of sketchy afterthought because they're not actually interested whereas in this it's like okay you can just work in retail that's fine <laughs> right like if your priority is getting married, maybe it's okay if this character is just working at a video store. <laughs> right. And not watching like cool movies. She's watching like a video of Charles and Diana <laughs> yes. getting married for like the 87th time. So <laughs> not like she's gone to the city to like, you know, go watch some, you know, Kurosawa movies on the camera. Like, no, 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 no. 
one track mind and that's fine it's realistic some people are like that sure i think it's really interesting that um pj hogan the director uh and writer also did my best friend's wedding because that is a movie that is a big studio rom-com like very much super traditional well so that is like it's starring julia roberts at the height of her sort of rom-com phase big big movie made a ton of money but that is a movie where the two nominal like romantic like leads don't get together at the end she like goes off with her gay best friend at the end like they're the people who sort of like get together and everyone in that movie is a fucking sociopath like i swear <laughs> to you i watched that with a friend of mine a couple years ago and we were both i need like, to watch this movie because i think i saw like half of it as a child or something oh my god <laughs> we were watching it and we neither of us had seen it and we were like wait is everyone in this movie evil except Cameron Diaz, who's like the poor, like young fiance of the woman Julia Roberts has like been in love with forever. And she's like an innocent naive and like, doesn't know what's going on. But like, you don't want Julia to wind up with whoever the guy is because she's awful. She is a horrible person, but then he's also awful. And so by the time you get to the end, you're kind of like, Cameron Diaz should just leave this situation. Like, go away. Get away from these bad people. <laughs> like, Rupert Everett plays the gay best friend. This is before he came out, incidentally. And he's great. Like, he's the most fun in the movie. But it's very much, like, not what you think of as kind of a the rom-com, right? And yet it came at the time when all of these movies were doing so well. But both of these films, though they are definitely on a different scale of production, kind of are pushing at these conventions in an interesting way. What is unfortunate is that this is now a musical in Australia, and they they <laughs> gave her a boy at the end! Why? Absurd. Terrible. Absurd. And, and PJ Hogan, the the director is the one who's sort of supervising this, so... Maybe he softened ma- in his old age. Yeah. It also makes you think, like, sometimes people just don't know what they've created. And that's fine. Art just exists for us, the public, to consume. It just... I was w- amazed by that, because I was doing some reading before this to sort of see what people had to say, and... It was like a big Guardian article with like an angry headline about the, you know, new ending of this. And I was like, why would they have done that? That's crazy. But who knows? What can I say? Um, Oh, when I was doing a little bit of reading before recording this episode, I read a great interview with Toni Collette where she reveals something about her childhood. Do you know what she did? I feel like I do and I forgot. Please enlighten (laughs) me. She faked appendicitis and got her appendix taken out. Yes, yes, I do remember. <laughs> and it was also just a really charming interview because she was like, I realize this makes me sound like an absolute maniac. But basically what her mother had told her is like, oh, when I was 11, I had my appendix taken out. So when she turned 11, she was like, I guess it's appendix time. So she like <laughs> faked appendicitis and eventually got to the point where her appendix was removed. And as an adult, she's just like, yeah, I don't know what child logic I was operating on. <laughs> I'm not actually constantly seeking attention like that. <laughs> I mean, what an astonishing feat of acting to convince doctor. I mean, doctors are idiots, but like, yeah. that's really quite something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she was dedicated to her craft from an early age. 
and uh, then went on to become one of our finest actresses. I mean, what a great story to be able to tell people in <laughs> yes. interviews, right? Like, that's just too good. Who else can compete with that one? I can't think of, of any actor anecdote I've heard that's, that's that extreme. <laughs> I literally had surgery on myself because I was such a drama queen as an 11-year-old. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, do we have any final thoughts on this film? I mean, my double, my double bill of this and Priscilla was really excellent. Yeah, and I, I think the two options it. here are the double bill of this and Priscilla in that order, or the double bill of this and Hereditary also in that order. <laughs> so you could just get like the two extremes of Tony Collette's career. And it's also good timing, because I think next week, or possibly the week after, we will be doing the new movie by the director of Hereditary, um, Ari Aster, which is called Midsummer. I think it might be in two weeks. Yeah, uh, I believe next week we have Carol. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I love we've Carol. Just missed Pride Month, but that's because I was ill. So it's work we're, we're close enough. It's fine. And also this was a Patreon sponsored episode as well. Uh thank you to Joanne for requesting Muriel's wedding. And uh yeah, next week's Carol. Yes. Um so we have two in a row sponsored by very generous patrons. We are very appreciative. I haven't seen Carol since it came out and it is one of my uh, least favorite Todd Haynes movies, which is a <laughs> testament to the strength of his filmography, because I liked it a lot, but I did not feel as passionate about it as you, for instance, but also many journalists <laughs> who were I, just, like, obsessed with it. I made all my friends go to see this with me for my birthday. Not, like, on opening weekend. I think it was, like, it must have come out a bit before that, or maybe it was a re-release or something, but I'd seen it already, and I was like, okay... All of us are collectively going to see Carol. Many of these were people who literally do not even watch indie films or films in general. And I was like, everyone, it's class time. We're going to class. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing it again um, because Todd Haynes is one of my favorite, favorite directors. And this was something that I liked but didn't love. And I love so many of his movies that I really want to give it another shot. Um, I think part of it is I just don't love Rooney Mara, which is something that may not be able to be overcome, but I'm going to, I'm going to make an effort, but we will have a lot to discuss with that one because you love that movie. And I have seen all of Todd Haynes' movies, yes. every single one of them. Expert. So yep. That is on Netflix in the United States. So if anyone wants to uh, rewatch or watch for the first time, uh, Carol, you can do that on Netflix in the United Given States. Given that that film's release was buried by the Weinstein company. Who... Oh, we will discuss that drama <laughs> next some week. Wild marketing for that film. Yep. <laughs> um, and I'm sure it's available on various platforms in the UK as well. Uh, Watch Muriel's Wedding, an excellent film. Uh, very, very fun to discuss. Two great films in a row about the institution of marriage. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and then, so Carol next week, and then Midsummer the week after. Um, if you would like to subscribe to our Patreon to either force us to watch something of your choice or uh, to subscribe on a lower level to get access to minisodes, um, to blog posts, to our book club, which we have coming up this summer, we will be reading uh, North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Yes, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, we would also greatly appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service that you use. Um, and if you want to hire me, 
I don't have a job anymore. So you can email me at morgan.l.davies at gmail.com. I will write, research, edit, anything for you. Skilled uh, film critic. Yes. Cultural critic in general. Extremely yes. literate. Turns out clean copy. Mm-hmm. Many skills. And very organized, as I can attest, because I have now worked with Morgan on not one, but two long-term creative business projects. And Indeed. she knows how to do things like deadlines. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, one of my many skills. Um, so yes, you can email me. I'm also on Twitter at MLDavies. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, you can find my writing at The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. Uh, our podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Uh, we are on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.